0: excited to uh to be concluding our series this morning and uh, excited about 2019 to see what it is that it holds and uh, we're already excited about the next uh, series that will be kicking off next sunday uh, you won't want to miss it we're going to uh, start back up in first corinthians and uh starting in chapter 7 it's going to be a great series uh, we're wrapping up right now what's called a uh, light arriving and so it's the end of our advent series and this morning's uh, message is entitled the fulfillment the fulfillment and uh I want to let you know, uh, if, you're, if you're here and you're kind of just weighing in, just so you can kind of understand as this series culminates, that what we've really been doing is we've been looking at different characters that are revealed through the biblical Christmas narrative. And we've been kind of uh, seeing and gleaning from those different characters what it is that the Lord may be speaking to us. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to wrap up the series by looking at someone that typically is not looked at uh, during the Advent series, and that is Herod we're going to be looking at Herod this morning, and the fact that uh, Christmas is more than just a season or a holiday. For some people might be like, well, Christmas is over, you know? Uh, But the fact is, uh, as light arrives, the implications of Christmas remain, and Christmas isn't simply a holiday. Uh, It has implications in every area and facet of our lives. So we're going to uh, start off by reading in Matthew chapter two, and uh, that will be projected for those of you that don't have the ability to follow along. If you do have that new version happen, you want to track along. You can take notes in our messages live there, as you've already heard. Um, I just went to the wrong place. My uh, my iPad stopped working right before service because that's just the way things happen to me. <laughs> and uh, now my Bible isn't working either, which is great. So I won't be reading scripture at all. Yeah, let's read it off the screen. What in the world? What's happening? It's so annoying. All right. So it's like once you have everything kind of figured out, it's like yeah, just kidding. That's not working out. So um, Matthew chapter two, verse one. Do you have it open there? I'm trying. All right. Uh, We'll do that because I'll be distracted by looking (laughs) at it. All right, so, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and that's kind of key because we're talking about who Herod is, who Herod was, and so we're going to kind of start with verse 1, and now we're going to skip on uh, beginning at verse 13, and it says this, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we come before you this morning and uh, we just declare ourselves available, available to hear from you and available um, to be led by you. And so I pray this morning that as we leave this place, we will have had an encounter with the living God, that it won't simply be uh, a service, but it will be an encounter with the living God that will have implications and ramifications in our life for days and years to come, for your glory and our joy. In your name we pray. Everyone said Amen. Amen. So... As I started thinking about what it is that I was going to be speaking about this morning, I kind of had a whole mess of different things come to mind in regards to how it is that I can could illustrate the tension that's taking place in the life of Herod. And uh, there were a lot of things that came to mind. Uh, I was a lifeguard for a short time, and in my lifeguarding years, one of the things that they tell you is that when someone is facing Uh, the potential of dying, the potential of drowning, basically all bets are off. And we have to be cautious of that. That, in fact, while you're trying to rescue someone, they could physically pull you under and you could end up becoming the drown victim. And it's amazing how that happens. I was in a a YMCA, and I watched a fairly strong swimmer and a strong gentleman uh, jump in to help an elderly woman who appeared to be drowning. Uh, She went under for a long time, came up, and She was the type of woman that would do that every once in a while just to have a lifeguard give her a little bit of attention. (laughs) It was great. And uh, so we would kind of tease each other like, who's going to say for now? And uh, lo and behold, she was always fine. And uh, this time it was pretty clear that she was actually struggling. And so he jumped in to help her. And it's amazing how a tiny, frail, elderly woman can grab a healthy, young man, and just pull him underwater and just try to get, just try to use him as a ladder to get up out of the water. And all of a sudden, he realizes, wait, she's not playing a game. like She's legit uh, drowning here. She's fighting for her life. And so he grabbed her and, and pulled her out of the water. But it's amazing how we have this strength, how we have this ability to do things at all costs when all of a sudden we think our lives are in jeopardy, when we think that maybe we're not as safe as we thought. When I was in college, we had uh, this one spot uh, where we would, um, we would overlook. It was kind of, um, it was kind of a, a concrete embankment, if you will, if you can kind of picture that with me. It almost looked like a, a cliff. It was like it came to an edge, and then there was a water dam where the water would rush over and come down, and they would control the volume of water coming over this dam. And it was a place where someone at some point thought it would be a good idea to jump. And so it was a place that we would go to jump off of this embankment. And it was about 20 to 30 feet. And, of course, you feel like you're just flying through the air. And the whole time you're thinking, this is a bad idea. And uh, you jump into the water. And so we would jump into the water and we would swim. There was a rope that was tied there so we could swing out over uh, the dam. And uh, now when I go back and visit, it's, uh, it's all no trespassing, no um, trespassing super dangerous place, uh, evidently, but in college, you know, like, you're indestructible. And so, at the time, we would just go and jump off, and uh, there was one time in particular, we went there and the water volume was so rough that we realized we shouldn't go off. It was one of those things that sounded like a good idea, and then we got there and the volume of water was rushing over, like, dude, I don't wanna die today, we shouldn't jump off of this. So it was a group of about five of us that were on this edge. We were all roommates, and uh, we lived in an apartment together, and so we're kind of looking at it, and we are in our trunks and stuff, and we're like, come on, man, somebody should just jump off. It's not that bad. You're such a wuss. Come on. you know." And how that kind of happens, you're kind of egging people on, and then you joke around like you're going to jump, and you're not going to jump. And so one of our friends thought it would be funny uh, to shove one of our other friends. How many are you? That guy, right? <laughs> I think this is funny. Remember that time you killed him? Anyway, uh so he went up and pushed one of my friends, and in a moment of fear and terror, uh he turned around and he was not at the very edge. There was literally no chance he would tell you otherwise, but there was no chance he was gonna fall off of that cliff, and yet, he caught his balance, turned around, grabbed the guy, and threw him off. (laughs) Just, in a moment of absolute fear, turned around, grabbed whatever he could, and pulled. And he flew off. The water was really rough. Um, It actually tore his clothes off, and he was caught in a cycle underneath the water. We had to go down and actually go get him. It was really scary um, for a season. And and the reason why I share that absurd story and the story of an old lady trying to kill a lifeguard is because I want you to to understand that, that when we are confronted with a threat, all bets are off. When our way of life is threatened. All bets are off. And so I have a question for you to contemplate as we move into the message this morning. And the question I have for you is, what are you threatened by? What are you threatened by? And you might sit there this morning and say, I don't think I'm really threatened by much. I want to submit to you that you are. In fact, I think we're all threatened by something. That we're all threatened by anything or anyone that jeopardizes our ability to preserve our way of life. At its base root, if we think about what a threat really is, we are threatened by anything or anyone that jeopardizes our ability to preserve our way of life. Now, I realize that there's a lot of diversity in the room this morning. Like, I get that. I'm I'm not uh, absurd in in the sense. I'm not ignorant to the idea that there's different people, and the fact that our way of life looks different for every single person. I know that there are a lot of people in this room that have a lot. And so if there was a, a threat against losing everything that you have, or majority of you'd function in a threatened type of way. And I know that there are others in this room that have less. And I know that there's different family dynamics. And that we have different opinions about God and spirituality. And that we're all over the map with our differences. But regardless of how different we are, We do have something in common this morning. Christ follower to skeptic, um, wealthy to less than wealthy, all across the board, socioeconomically, regardless of how different we are, when our way of life is jeopardized, we feel threatened. We feel threatened. It's a natural response. And so I want to look this morning at the text, and before I do, I want us to consider the context of what it is that we're reading when we look at the life of Herod. Herod was the king of Judea, and so therefore, he was considered the king of the Jews at that time. He was considered the king of the Jews. And so if you missed last week where we talked about the wise men, the wise men show up and they, they tell Herod that they're here to find the king of the Jews, which of course Herod is the king of the Jews. And they go, no, we mean the one that's being born. And immediately, he's threatened. We're talking about a man who had his wife and his son killed. On separate occasions, he killed his wife and his son for the simple reason that they threatened his authority and his positional power. And so in the name of preservation, he had them executed. And so verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2 it says, Now when they, had departed, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is not unheard of. No one, no one missed or was out of the loop when it came to the violence that was Herod. Everybody knew full well what this guy was capable of, and so the idea that he would come and, and kill this child is pretty real reality. So Joseph doesn't hesitate. He takes him to Egypt, and the reason why he takes him to Egypt, although it is a, um, a reflection back on how God took Israel out of Egypt and set them free, um, so not only the fulfillment of some prophecy, but also the reality that, Egypt was a safe haven for uh, Jews specifically that were in political um, turmoil. In fact, history tells us that there were over a million Jews that populated Alexandria, and Alexandria we know the famous library in Alexandria, uh, Egypt, and so there were, it was typical for Jews that were uh, fleeing political persecution to go to Egypt, and so this wasn't an unheard of thing. Mostly, and uh, most importantly for our storyline, It was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. And so they could be free. They could be safe in Egypt. If we jump ahead to verse 16, it says this. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, so the wise men never come back as he requested them to. So when he found that he was tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, Who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so, right here, we have this snapshot of the evil reality of this man. That he doesn't just simply kill his wife, that he doesn't even kill his own son, but now, when threatened with his position, with his power, with his authority, he says, You know what? I'm gonna gonna kill all of the children. Male children in that age bracket to ensure that I remain in power. Now, based on the population of Bethlehem historically in that time, we can kind of ascertain that there were somewhere between uh, 20 to as high as 30 children that were killed by this edict. Horrible. It's absolutely horrifying. It's a it's a thought that you don't even really want to process. Um, super cheery, right? <laughs> Welcome to church. Herod killed babies. This is where we want to put Herod at a distance. It's where we want to kind of push Herod away and say, "Wow, you know who I identify with is, is Mary and Joseph." Because Mary and Joseph, they're they're fleeing for their lives. And so they're, the, they're these victimized people. They hear the voice of God and respond. And, and although I think that would preach, the, the reality is, and the truth is, we're more like Herod. We're more like Herod than we want to admit. And I'm not saying that we're murderous psychopaths. I don't think. <laughs> I'm not sure who's listening to the podcast. But anyway, I'm not saying that we're murderous psychopaths at all. What I am saying is that when our way of life is threatened, we lean into self-preservation. We get blinded to the danger of the reality. We're overcome by the moment. Suddenly, an elderly woman is using a, a young man who she would otherwise flirt with on any given day as a human ladder that she's driving to the bottom of a pool, trying to get ahead. How's that? That doesn't even compute. On any given day, we preserve and protect our friends and our roommates, but when our life is threatened in a moment, we don't think, you know what, I'm not even close to the edge. Instead, we turn around and we just grab for everything we can, and we throw a loved one right over the edge. When our way of life is threatened, we preserve ourselves. Herod reacted to the claim that Jesus was king of the Jews. He said, wait a second. I'm the king of the Jews, not this guy. I'm going to preserve my position. I'm going to preserve my authority. And in a moment more calculated than most of ours, he decided to do everything possible to secure his position. I want to tell you the reality this morning is that Jesus didn't claim to be the king of the Jews. He claimed to be the king of everyone. That's what he claimed. And that should be threatening. You see, it's threatening because you and I like to be the king of our own lives. You see, we're Herod, whether we like it or not. And so we sit in our own positions of authority over our lives and we have a predetermined way of how situations should work out, how people should reap the consequences of hurting us, how we're right and they're wrong. I'm going to get some spouses in trouble. And we we just fortify our position. And when anything jeopardizes that position, when anything jeopardizes that authority, we are threatened and respond in hurtful ways, in nonsensical ways, in unthinkable ways. Jesus is claiming to be the king of everyone. And here today, we're faced with the implications of the fulfillment. The light has arrived. Jesus has come to the earth. He threatens our self-centeredness. He threatens our way of life. And we're forced to deal with that. What are you going to do with the reality of Christmas in your everyday life? What do you do with that? We have to decide how we'll respond. Are you willing to declare Jesus the King of your life? And now there might be some of you in the room that are like, mm, pre- "Preach it, brother! Preach it! Like, wow! Mm-hmm. He's my King! Hallelujah!" You know. In which case, I don't know why you have a southern accent. It's okay. Just a little weird. We're in upstate New York. But, but you might be sitting there saying, like, he, he is my king. I get it. But, but do you live? Do you live like he's your king? Every day of your life. Every decision that you make. Are the implications of the decisions that you make evidenced with the reality that he is the king of your life? Relationally. Do you see the evidence of him being the king of your life in every relationship that you function in? Monetarily. You name it. You name the situation and and the, uh, the reality, the dynamic. Do you function as if Jesus is the king of your life? And I want to tell you, if you're quick to still say, yeah, no, I really do, then I want to tell you, You've fortified yourself into a form of religiosity where you've positioned yourself in a spiritual authority to where you are the king of your own spiritual reality. You are your own functional savior. And that's far more risky than the person that's like, "Mm, I'm just not sure I want God to be the Lord of my life yet. See, it's the other side of a really dangerous coin. We need to live in the tension that every day of our lives we have to submit to this king, this light that's arrived. It has to inform every decision. We have to be quick to forgive and slow to anger. We have to be quick to love. We have to look at at the life that we're living through a different lens. And, And if you're not willing to do that, then that's okay. It just means he's not the king of your life. So don't lie to yourself. You see, part of being a Christ follower is living in the tension of what it means to ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. And allowing the sanctification process, the holiness process to flow out in your life. In fact, the people around you are looking and saying, why do you make decisions just like me? You claim Christ, but you you make decisions the same way I do. You're just as dishonest. You're just trying to get ahead. You want more stuff. You are exactly like me, and yet you profess Christ. That's ridiculous. It's hypocritical. It's a joke. We live in the tension. And listen, if you've, if you've marginalized Jesus to simply inform what you do on Sundays between 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning, then you've declared something else the king of your life. Attending a church is not asking Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. We hate all of this, right? Like yay, I feel so good now. I think Claude just beat me up. <laughs> we hate it. The reason why is because we want to preserve our way of life. We, we wanna feel good about the decisions that we make. We wanna say things like this, but I'm a good provider, but I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife, I'm a good, I'm a good mother, I'm a good father, I'm a good brother, I'm a good sister, I'm a good person. Jesus, it didn't, it didn't come so that we would be good. He came to be the king of our lives. The implications should be felt in every facet of our lives. It's a paradigm shift. It's a moment where everything that makes sense in this plane around here, the idea of getting ahead and being right and all those things, it shifts upside down. And instead, we get to a place where we say, I want to serve people. I want to be slow to anger and quick to love. I want to be filled with joy, not because I'm trying really hard to be joyful, but because the joy of the Lord is in me. We want to remain king of our own lives. And so this is where I could tell you, so here's the deal. Act like Jesus is your king. Be nicer. Be nicer. Smile bigger. Be kind. Come on, guys. Try harder. You're a Christian, golly. Right? If you profess Christ, just buck up, little chap. It's okay. Life will get better. Run through fields. You'll never have difficulty. I don't know how fields and difficulty are connected. I think running through fields with flowers. I'm not sure. I may have ADD. In either case, the point is this. When we're confronted with moments like this, we want to connect the dots under our own efforts and say, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can try that. I'll be a better person. You know what? 2019's going to be different. I have my first New Year's resolution. Be kind. Right? Oh, my gosh. I don't even bother doing resolutions anymore. It's just depressing. We're trying, We try to fool ourselves into believing that we can be better but the reality is you'll never be better because there's something broken within us we, we want to preserve we want to in those moments that even if you are the kindest gentlest wonderful soft spoken old lady when you think you're drowning you will grab that boy and throw him to the bottom of the pool and you will <laughs> climb up on top of him in a messy way why? Because your way of life is jeopardized. And you're threatened. <laughs> so I want to tell you, that, you will, that your struggle will remain until you realize that he's a greater king than you. That he's a greater king than you. That he's worthy of your praise. And I'll, and I'll tell you this morning, if you're not there yet, if you're saying, listen, I'm not sure I believe that there is a God, I'm not sure I want him to be the king of my life, that's cool. That's all right. I'm not trying to impose that on you this morning. But I'm telling you, when you live enough life and you've tried enough at your own effort and you just continue to remain empty and broken and hurt and you try harder and you get ahead and you have the stuff and you say, the stuff doesn't really make me happy, maybe it's more stuff that I need, or maybe it's better relationships, or, or maybe it's people that respect me more, and you go through that cycle enough, you get exhausted enough to say, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, he's a greater king than me. So the question is, will you submit your life to him? Submitting your life to someone is a lot different than trying your hardest. Trying your hardest can fail on any given day. When you submit yourself to a greater king, it starts to change who you are on the inside. It changes your motives, your perspective. He did everything we should have done in his life. So that when we submit to him and declare him Lord and leader of our lives, we're saved because of what he has done, not because of our efforts. You see, he took the punishment that we deserve and we get the blessing that he deserves. We get to be called children of the living God when we submit to this amazing king. He takes the punishment. the consequences, the poor decisions, and the sin, and the brokenness of your life, he says, I'm going to redeem that, and I'm going to give to you the blessing that is due me. And so I want to ask you to consider something this morning. Oftentimes we we come together, and as we come together, we, we hear a message, and we laugh a little, or we laugh a lot, which I think church should be fun. We attend a service, but I always want it to be more than that. I want the text that we lean into to have implications into every area and facet of our lives. And so I truly believe that the text this morning requires something from us. And so I want to ask you to consider a question as you leave this place. The question is this. What in your life needs to submit to the implications of Christmas? What is it in your life that needs to submit to the implications of Christmas? Because Christmas, like I said, it's not just a a holiday. It's not just a season. It's a willingness to acknowledge the fact that the light has arrived, that the fulfillment of God among us has taken place. And that has to have implications in every area of our lives. But I want to let you know, as a human being with blood coursing through your veins, there is some aspect of your life that you haven't submitted to the Lord. And if you say this morning, no, I've submitted everything, then it's your pride that hasn't been submitted. Because we're all human. We all fall short of the glory of God, and it's only because of his mercy and his grace that we can be found holy. And so what is it this morning? Is it your life as a whole? Is, is this morning the, the application that you need to take and, and, and what it is that needs to submit to the implications of Christmas is, you know what, I've never actually Asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. I've never made that official. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm not going to embarrass you or make you come forward or anything like that. I won't even make you lift your hands. I don't want an emotional reaction. I want a a personal acknowledgement that he is worthy to be king of your life. So that'll be real easy to pray a prayer in just a moment in the quietness of your sleep. And as you consider the possibility for those of you that are in the midst of crossing that line of faith this morning I want others in the room to consider what area of your life needs to submit is it a relationship this morning is it a relationship and that doesn't even have to be a dating or a marital relationship we have relationships with friends and family members children sometimes there's a hurt that we hold on to it's magnified around the holiday season right You kind of are forced to interact almost like pleasantly. (laughs) Oh, hi. Uh Everything's fine. I hope you die. God bless. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Jesus loves us. (laughs) Because there's this area of your life that's not submitted. There's this corner, this sliver, this pain, this hurt, this unresolved thing you want to hold on to. Why? Because you think you have a right to. Because somewhere along the line, Your way of life was threatened. You lean to self-preservation. And here's the deal, maybe you're right. But you're reaping the consequences of your rightness because of your unwillingness to forgive. Because of your unwillingness to release. I don't know what it is this morning. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's just this desire to accumulate. Maybe it's connected to finances. Maybe this year you're, you say, listen, I, I'm so passionate about accumulating that I'm so nervous to tithe and to trust the Lord with my finances. And there's so many people that say, well, I don't even, I don't even see tithing in the, old, in the New Testament. It's only in the Old Testament. So I'm going to proactively address that real quick. And it's not because we talk about money, but in the New Testament, tithing is actually about giving everything you own. Isn't that interesting? So you can give 10% or you can be a New Testament tither. (laughs) Bring it all. (laughs) I don't want your stuff. This isn't about money. it's It's about the implications of Christmas in your life. And I know that there are two main issues for every single person in this room, myself included, relationships and finances. That's it, like it or not. And so this morning, I can't talk about the application and what it is that the scripture requires of us without talking about the two main hot buttons. So do I want your money? No, I don't. But is it possible that maybe the Lord does? And maybe you don't want to come to church here, and that's fine too. So wherever it is that you're going, you need to consider tithing in 2019 so that the Lord can be the leader of your life in your finances, the leader of your life in your relationships. What does it look like to say, he is the Lord and leader of my life. He is the king of my life. I don't know. I don't know what that is for you this morning. But I know it's typical for most of us. Relationships and money. I don't know. But I believe that the Lord has something that he wants to whisper to you. And I think he's already begun to do it. I think there's already something that the Lord's tugged on your heart when I either gave an illustration that wasn't direct but it had implications and you're like, yeah, I've got to move beyond that. It's time to forgive him. It's time to forgive her. I need to have a conversation. I need to write a letter that maybe I'll never mail. You ever done that? Write a letter for yourself. I need to forgive them. They'll never hear me. I need to write it out because I need some healing inside my heart and mind. Is what the Lord's calling me to do. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes this morning, and uh, if you're easily distracted you can keep your eyes open, but just the floor. Because I just don't want you distracted by things going on around the room as the worship team kind of makes their way up. We're gonna go into a, a time of, of response. where we have the opportunity to take that application and, and respond in, in whatever way makes sense to you to your situation. And maybe it means writing some notes down of some action steps that the Lord's laid on your heart that you needed to do right away. Maybe it's just praying a prayer, asking the Lord to reveal to you the thing that needs to submit, the thing that needs to change. You don't know. For others of us this morning, we know exactly what it is. Maybe it's even the lies that we tell ourselves. Isn't that interesting? The woman, we're the king of our own lives. We have the authority to speak lies into our own lives, taken authority to tell ourselves that we're worthless, that we're less than, that we don't measure up. <coughs> the true king, the real king, the greater king, it says you're valuable, that you're loved. That you belong. So I don't know what it is this morning. The Holy Spirit's revealing to you, but I know the text requires something from us, and we want to provide space for us to respond. We're going to do that in song in just a moment. If you haven't crossed that line of faith this morning, if you haven't asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life, it's this easy. Simply pray a prayer right now in the quietness of your mind. Mm-hmm. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. You died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? It's that easy. Pray that in the quietness of your mind right where you're at, in your own words. I'd love to talk to you after service if you've prayed that prayer. But I'm not going to single you out. So I ask that we would just stand to our feet. Allow me just to lead you in prayer as we go into a time of worship this week. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that you are the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied about this coming King. And Lord, that as you declare to be King over everyone and we wake and the implications of that in our own lives. (coughs) Father, we declare you worthy. We declare you good. We thank you for who you are. We pray that as we worship you, that as we respond to your kindness and your goodness, that your presence would fill this place, that you would remain here, that you would do a work in our hearts and lives. We leave this place changed. Because of who is the king of our lives? Let's worship together.